All right, what's going on my friends? Welcome back to Titus Talks. Today I get to have a great conversation with my good friend and long-term colleague, uh, Young V. Lim. We're gonna have a great conversation around kind of biotech and DIY bio, whatever the heck that means. And just, you know, Young V's experience coming into all of this. Just to remind everyone, this is a podcast, so if you listen to it on all the major things, um, Apple, Spotify, whatever, you have to subscribe and give it a five-star rating and then tell us what you like and we'll have more of those kind of conversations. And then for anyone who wants to watch, this is also a video. Um, you can find it on YouTube. Same thing. You got to subscribe. Tell us what you like and we'll have a good conversation. So, and last for all of the most efficient people out there, I send this out in a newsletter as well. So alexandertitus.com slash newsletter and I'll send it to you. You can be lazy. So, Youngby. Hello. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So, Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So for everyone, Titus Talks is really about making you know, biotech and careers and other tech um, less intimidating and having a conversation with people about the cool paths that they've taken. So I want to hear all about what you've done. And for people who don't know, um, Youngby and I actually met in a kind of a networking fellowship program through the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. So we got to always plug the Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity Initiative. So LB, LB18 is always the best year. It is, it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. Um, so Young B, I'm going to start with a very open-ended question because I want to hear, I want everyone to hear all the cool stuff. So why don't you just tell us a story? Sure. When, when it comes to DIY bio, um, because you mentioned DIY bio, which is um, an acronym for do-it-yourself biology, which is what I'm studying for my dissertation, is the kind of serendipitous path that led me to studying DIY bio and becoming a part of that community. In my master's program, I'm a, I was a master's student at studying biodefense at George Mason University. I was first introduced to this idea of do-it-yourself biology, which is people that are doing the life sciences outside of academia, industry, and government during my master's program at George Mason University. And when you first learn about it in kind of like a security context, you think to yourself, wow, there are these people out there that are doing all sorts of potentially nefarious things with access to technology and access to information. And it's, you know, it, you know, from a security perspective, it can look very scary. You know, I kind of was focused and interested in 2015, um, around that time. And then I happened to get a very fortunate kind of research assistantship at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, which is amazing. I, I love California. California is going through a lot right now, but yeah. you know, I really, I really enjoyed my time there. And at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, I was working on um, a bio portfolio dealing with kind of biological threats and assessing them at the uh, Center for Global Security Research. And the people there learned that I was interested in DIY bio and hooked me up with this person at Lawrence Livermore National Labs cool. who actually had founded a do-it-yourself biology lab. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, you know, in a security location, I found out that there was someone that was apparently supposed to be a security risk from what I learned academically. Right, right. And they introduced me to him and he, they, and he told me, hey, are you interested in learning about do-it-yourself biology? And I said, yes. And he said, do you actually want to interact and go to a lab? And I said, 
Yes. And that really was the initial step that led me down this path to really trying to understand what the community is, understand what the safety and security implications are, as well as the innovative and educative potential as well. So I kind of went from a very traditional security focused lens to, you know, a very experiential hybrid type individual. And um, I haven't looked back since. That's awesome. And we've also had a, not, a great conversation with uh, Dr. Ellen Jorgensen as well, who mm. you know, founded the world's first community biology lab, which is community bio lab and DIY bio. Are those synonymous? Are those pretty similar? So it's interesting that you asked that. Um, and it's, a, it's a bit of a branding thing. So initially, like in 2008, the do-it-yourself biology kind of online uh, community was formed by okay. Jason Bob and Mac Cowell in uh, in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. Leave it to Boston. Yeah, I know. Leave it to Boston. Hub of innovation, whether for good or for ill, who knows? <laughs> but as time has progressed, there has been a push from multiple initiatives, including the MIT Media Lab, led by David Kong's uh, Community Biotechnology Initiative, where they're kind of shifting a little bit more from the do-it-yourself biology, because it sounds very individualistic. Right to more of a discussion about community labs because it sounds much more collective. Right. Yeah. You know, it's about this idea that we can't do all of this alone. So we need to work together in concert and as a family. Awesome. Yeah. Then that makes sense because do it yourself bio kind of sounds do it by yourself bio. And that's the opposite of what we want. We don't want a bunch of people in their basements doing scary things, right? We want, we want everything to be out in the open so we can have conversations and do cool stuff to do responsibly, right? No, absolutely. You know, it's about balancing the kind of innovative potential with the, you know, safety and security considerations that you and I often think about, but also making sure that we keep the fun in science. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of what this whole effort is as well. So you have a background and you're studying and then the kind of the intersection of biotech and DIY bio synthetic biology, if you will, um, and kind of the social sciences, which, you know, I'm trying to give lots of people exposure to kind of different backgrounds on how people get to different areas, because people think there's a one path to get there, but there's so many different routes to so many different careers. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you're blending the kind of social sciences and the synthetic biology DIY bio space? Yeah, absolutely. So I think part of it has to do with the way that Mason generates this biodefense program, which is really about a hybrid approach. So you're kind of exposed to a broad number of fields, including basic biology. So you have a little bit of information when it comes to things like, um, you know, virology, uh, pathogenesis, things along those lines. Um, so you can kind of engage in that biodefense, biosecurity parlance. Right. But then you're also provided the flexibility to look at other fields that might intersect with the life sciences that you might have interests in. So a lot of my interests were in science and technology studies and political science. And actually, my undergraduate was in psychology. So I had a really strong leaning towards the social sciences. And I will say it's not easy because... 
what you essentially have to do is you have to become a jack of all trades. You're never going to be the master of one particular domain because you have to know enough science to be able to communicate with policymakers about the science, but also understand the experts. But you can't necessarily be the expert in that scientific area, right? right. But, you know, it's a really fun place to be because what I find is working at the intersection of social sciences and technology, there's always something else to learn, yeah. right? I, I you, mean, you have two gateways to two huge universes, not even fields, but universes of areas. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, it always reinforces to me that the things that we're, we're talking about, right? So emerging tech, societal issues, finding ways to leverage tech to address societal problems while mitigating risks, things along those lines. No one person can do that all by itself. And it's always a lesson to me when I'm sitting at this intersection to know that I can be a piece of a larger thing. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, Right now, to your, I think you're getting that right now we're going through COVID, we're going through a very raw demonstration of how we need to reform a lot of our kind of social practices and around race and equality and all those kind of things. So both from the science and the social science and the humanities and the arts, these intersections are so important. That's, I mean, that's really the point of all of this is to hear about from the people behind the tech and the money, because we can talk about dollars and startups all day, but it's really the people who make the world go round. Right. And, you know, without the people, there wouldn't be something that we could work towards, as you're very much talking about, right? It's always important. I think that um, sometimes social scientists get a little bit of a, not a bad rap, but we kind of get a little bit of a, what can you contribute to the conversation? So for any of those social scientists out there that are wondering, what can I contribute to the conversation? Trust me, there is definitely something you can contribute to the conversation because the problems that we're dealing with are incredibly complex. They involve society and are intrinsic within society. And the work that you're doing and the work that needs to be done through you is important. So just never forget that. No, uh, 100%. So, I mean, I'm not a social scientist, but I advocate a lot for people who come from quote-unquote hard sciences, um, which I think is a silly term. But to be better communicators. And so it doesn't all have to be in one person like you're talking Mm -hmm. about as well. I actually just, I recently wrote a blog post about how the Pentagon knows me as the guy who carries a brick around because (laughs) the way I found out how to tell a, like a visual story when I worked at the DOD was walk in with a brick made with biology. And Mm. so that storytelling, um, which means good writing skills in a way that you're talking about, like communicating with policymakers is very different from how you communicate with you know, a, a scientific audience. Right. No, absolutely. You know, there. in some ways, when you're an academic and you interact pre- predominantly with academics, you're a little bit spoiled in the sense that everybody already shares a common parlance. Everybody kind of already knows the secret handshakes when it comes to, you know, how you operationalize something or, you know, all of these kinds of things. So whenever you step outside of the role of academic to science communicator, whether it's to a policymaker or whether it's to a citizen audience, you always have to keep in mind that you can't just use the parlance that you use in academia. It's not going to connect. It's not going to communicate 
they're going to get bored within 15 seconds after you say problematic 15 times, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. The other thing I want to point out, uh, kind of pull the string on a little bit, is you saying that it's tough, you know, as a social scientist working in these, in and around these STEM fields, and by no means intend to um, say that's a lesser struggle. But what I want to highlight is that lot, almost everyone I've talked to has that feeling. Either they're, they have a bachelor's degree in like, you know, pure engineering, but they don't have a PhD. So they feel like they're kind of isolated or they have a PhD in the social sciences and they feel like they're not quite in that stem. You and I have talked about this before because right, I am in the biotech world, but I'm not actually a biotechnologist. I'm a data scientist. So at the same time, like, Every single person has imposter syndrome, but if everyone is an imposter, then no one's an imposter. And so it gets back to that kind of community. It's like, it's actually less intimidating when you think about it because secretly everyone's just as intimidated. No, absolutely. And I think that there are really two very interesting things to pull from what you know you just pointed out. And the first thing is we all can only know what we know. Yeah. So we all operate in this very odd information asymmetry world where we realize that we know the things that we know, but we don't know what other people know. Yeah. And what other people know might encompass what we know plus whatever else they know, which is, I think, a very natural human condition, which, you know, yeah. contributes to imposter syndrome. Right. Um, so I think that is a really interesting observation right there of why we, you know, put ourselves in positions of imposter syndrome and kind of look down on what our contributions may be, because we, of course, whatever we think we're going to think is obvious. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it, but the, even if you know the same set of facts, the exact same set of facts, it's your life and cultural experiences that make that very different. Um, I am bringing it back to a lot of what's going on right now. And so the reason that you know we're, there's so many conversations around how race inequality is not right. We are not an equal society right now, and because we kind of strip out and dilute the importance of cultural background. I was just having a conversation with my sister about how, you know, if you have students of the same cultural background in an elementary school, it's okay to have them in the same class rather than try to like spread them out across classes because you get people with shared experiences, but also across those experiences as well. So it's the same thing when, when in careers, um, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. You know, anything that you particularly, you know, Never second guess the contributions that you can make because everybody, just like you pointed out, has unique experiences that provide them unique vantage points, potentially unique insights that might not necessarily be available to others. So one example of that in a previous job that often happened was, so I, I'm, I'm Korean, I'm Korean American, and I love going to Korea. So I think in the past five years, I might have gone six times. Wow. Um, cool. Yeah, it's um, it's great. I also speak the language, you know, and um, I'm still very culturally aware of how things happen and how things are supposed to be done in Korea. So it's always a really joyous experience for me to go back. But whenever I go, 
I always kind of, you know, I talk to the locals and I talk to people and go, you know, what are your thoughts on these various kinds of things happening in like the NatSec world, you know, things like that. And for individuals that are interested, and there have been individuals that have been interested whenever I get back from one of those trips, they're like, hey, so, you know, you kind of have like had the pulse on, you know, more the kind of like the citizens of Korea and what are your interpretations of that? Yeah. So, you know, everybody, everybody has unique experiences and unique backgrounds and all of those can be leveraged in a way that not exploited, but leveraged in a way that I think, you know, really, you know, helps contribute to broader conversations. Yeah. I mean, it's paramount to be able to have broader conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, so my final completely open-ended question to you, and I know that these completely open-ended questions are always fun and frustrating. But if you had, if you could give one kind of golden nugget of advice to people, to whatever group you want to give advice to, from your vantage point, what would what would it be? Can I give two? Yeah, you can give as many as you want. All right. So uh, the first one that I really think about: people shouldn't be afraid to try something new or different. So if you know, I just as an example, I had essentially two dissertation paths before me. My, my dissertation advisor finally told me after I delayed and hemmed and hawed for a bit, um, you need to choose a topic. Uh, and so I had two choices. One was a very traditional approach, which was a lot of content analysis and just a lot of like data gathering um, through books and literature and articles. And, yeah. um, and I could have done some sort of, you know, 200, 300 page analysis of a particular topic. Right. The other was this really great project that I'm doing now for my dissertation, which is I was able to visit nine community labs across the United States, um, attend the largest global convention of do-it-yourself biologists and community scientists. It's, you know that happens annually at MIT Media Lab called the Global Bio Summit, and interact with people, observe how people, pra- you know. Are organized and practice science in these spaces. And I think from the enthusiasm in my voice, you can tell that I really feel like I made yeah. the right choice. Right. Yeah. Even though it was the riskier one, right? right. Because I didn't necessarily, you know, the, the content analysis is very straightforward. Right. Very boring, but very straightforward. It's very safe. But this other one is novel and interesting. And it really takes an academic out of the ivory tower and into the lives and literally the community, right? The lives and experiences of the actual community that you want to be interacting with and understanding. So don't be afraid to try something new, I think is, is, is one piece of advice. And the second piece of advice is especially give, especially nowadays, you know, as a person of color, um, as a queer individual, uh, it's been, it's been a really interesting, and I don't, and I, and I use that term interesting in a very broad sense to observe essentially what's been happening out there in the world. And, you know, from, from COVID to, you know, the, the protests and the rise, rising up of allies and, you know, black and indigenous people of color um, to finally set some some things right when it comes to racial inequality and systemic inequality. And, you know, I would just say that those things historically that people, you know, those experiences that drove people away 
from, you know, institutions of, you know, traditional institutions or feeling that they could be a part of something. Those experiences, as horrible as they are, have created you into the being that you are, have made you stronger. And that is the kind of strength that we need as we face the issues that we face in the 21st century. So I really feel like people have people are going through the fire right now. And I have every belief in the world that as, you know, as individuals and as a community and as, you know, as a society, we will be stronger through it. You know, we will be stronger at the end of it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. That's uh I mean, it's huge for that kind of advice to be given out there because we need uh, every single person to really be both kind of encouraging and providing guidance and then supporting, you know, along the whole way. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the other things that I really try to get the theme across for all these conversations is that there is no one route to any kind of success. So you just described it exactly in your first piece of advice. You know, there's, there's the route that, you know, most people would expect. And then there is a completely different route and it's you're enjoying it and you're loving life uh, around that decision. Um, and so especially now as we think of what life and careers are going to be like after COVID, if there is an after COVID, <laughs> um, yeah, it's we're going to have to redefine all the rules um, right. across the board. And, you know, I really see, you know, I just want to put a plug in there for the community lab community. You know, there, there really is a role for this community to, as a grassroots organization, build people up within their community, provide science education, also provide science literacy. Um, because science, you know, as much as people might like it or not, is a integral part of our future. And to be able to access and become a part of that kind of scientific, you know, community, getting that literacy early on, getting that education early on is so important. And I'm really proud of the way that community labs across the world are trying to find ways to diminish those barriers to entry for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we can reduce even the need for like PhDs and graduate degrees, Mm -hmm. the more we can make this accessible to a broader set of people earlier in life, the more we can start to get that true kind of representation and equality rather than, you know, we can't fight all of the system the whole way. So we have to bring things to a level um, where everyone has the ability to have access to it. Right. Absolutely. And also, you know, through these methods, you know, of getting people in early, of having people interacting with scientific communities, especially people at community labs that have a significant amount of life sciences training already, being able to learn these things in a safe and secure environment, um, I think is, you know, is really is really the future. Absolutely. Well, Youngby, it has been awesome. I really appreciate you chatting with me. Uh, and all your insights. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. And I really think that this is a fantastic, um, fantastic initiative and project. I wish that there was there were resources like this when I was going through my undergrad or my master's, because a lot of us don't 
you know, a lot of us feel like we're all alone and uh, with our doubts and um, the fact that you're trying to increase this um, accessibility and increase people's perspectives on how unconventional, you know, tracks could lead towards really interesting things, um, I think is fantastic. So thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. More than one person has asked me, WTF are you doing with your life? So I want everyone to have a good answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing amazing things. Thanks. Well, everyone, remember, this is a podcast, so please subscribe, give it a five-star review, and leave a comment to say what what you like so we can do more of it. If you're watching the video, same deal. And then if you're too lazy to do any of that, sign up for the newsletter, and I'll send it all to you, alexandertitus.com slash newsletter. So thank you, everyone, and thank you, Young B. Oh, thank you.